John chapter 10. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This section of scripture is driven by what is called color commentary. Color commentary is what happens at most sporting events when one of the announcers gives background details or um, during the game, during the event. Verses 19 through 21 are the color commentary concerning the events that took place in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 10. Verse 31 is a color commentary of verse 22 through 30. Verses 39 through 42 are the color commentary of verses 32 through 38. And throughout this interaction, within those color commentaries, the greatest miracle Christ ever performs is being slowly revealed to us. This section of scripture also highlights the importance of apologetics in the life of the Christian. Apollo what? Apologetics, which is the defense of the faith. Something that if many, if not most Christians, fear ever having to do. And on the surface, an illustration of the Karen life of sheep might not seem like it would cause division or even interest. But having said that, the illustration that Jesus gave in verses 1 through 18 was marked by a statement of divine nature. He said, I am, ego ami. He used it to define who he is. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And as I stated last week, the term that Jesus used to describe himself is the same one that was used from that burning bush to describe God to Moses. Only there, Moses was told, I am that I am. That fire and that burning bush could not rightly describe this I am, even though we are told that God is a consuming fire. But because there was no suitable descriptor to be used in defining, in describing God to Moses, God used the best descriptor of himself, in himself. And Jesus came to make the Father known to us. John chapter 1, verse 18 tells us, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is why when God revealed to us who he is in the I Am, he then used descriptors other than himself each one revealing something more and deeper about the reality of who this God is. That God that is standing in front of these men on that day. And this God, this I Am, not only told them about who He was, but He also defined who His sheep were and how we are to tell if you are one of them or not. His sheep hear His voice. His sheep obey his voice. His sheep will flee any other who tries to be their shepherd. This is the confrontation that has caused the first set of color commentary before us. The one that revealed the rift in that crowd that was gathered there. One group of people abasing the other. Division happening because of Jesus. One group thought that because of his claims, because of his illustrations, that he was insane, that he was a madman. The other group of people had heard the same exact words. They had witnessed the same exact events, and they had come up with a completely different conclusion concerning this man. They didn't think that he was insane or had a demon. They pointed to what he had said to prove that he didn't have a demon. They pointed to his actions, his miracles, as proof that he didn't have a demon. 
Well, does this truth not bolster the thought that there is no such thing as real truth, that there's only your truth and my truth? No, it doesn't. What this commentary proves is that there is a divide between people, not a racial one, since there's only one race on this planet. That's called the human race. The division that is happening now happens quite often in our life over facts being given. Divisions can happen over issues of education or training or even mental agility. But this wasn't where the division was occurring here, not along educational or even social lines, because there were members from the religious elite that were defending Jesus, Nicodemus to name one. And at the same time, there were the disciples who were fishermen, tax collectors. They were following him. The question that we are meant to wrestle with, to struggle with, is why were there people from all walks of life who could see the exact same thing, hear the exact same teaching, and come away with completely different opinions of Jesus? And this all brings us to the next interaction between Jesus and the religious authorities as found to, in verses 22 through 30. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you didn't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, verses 22 and 23 are not color commentary. They are setting the stage for the encounter that's about to happen. They are given to us to allow, for us to allow, and to us to know important details about the events that are about to take place. They are background information that makes the foreground events meaningful. The Feast of Dedication was not a God-ordained feast. He didn't give this feast to the Jews. They gave it to themselves. It was a commemoration of the Maccabean Revolution. In 165 BC, Judas Maccabeus, also known as Judas the Hammer, cool name, led a revolt against the king of Syria, a man named Antichius Epiphanes, who claimed to be God and who had sacked Jerusalem and had sacrificed pigs on the altar to God to himself and his lesser pagan deities. This had all taken place in 167 BC. Now your ears may have caused, you, caused your mind to question the name of that Syrian king because that didn't sound like the name of a Syrian king. It sounded more Greek, Hellenistic. And you're right. The dynasty that, that dynasty was a splinter dynasty that occurred when the Greek kingdom fell apart after the death of Alexander the Great. And not only had the Greeks conquered Judea, they had very easily converted vast numbers of Jews away from Judaism into paganism to the point that many, if not most of the population, cared very little that the temple had changed ownerships. And it was two years after the sacrificing of pigs on the altar that an edict was sent out by that king, making it illegal to worship God. This is what sparked the Maccabean War, a war that saw the vastly outnumbered and undersupplied Jews win over and again against their invaders as they masterfully fought in what we would call guerrilla warfare. And as the Maccabeans gained more control of the country, 
They physically forced the Jews to renounce their pagan gods and begin once again to follow the laws and covenants given them by God. And two years after the fighting began, Judas Maccabeus recaptured Jerusalem. And on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, he rededicated and reopened the temple. Kislev is our month of December. This is the Feast of Dedication. And the Feast of Dedication is still celebrated by the Jews to this day. Only now it's called the Feast of Lights, or we know it as Hanukkah. One more bit of explanation before we start actually digging into what's being said. We are told that Jesus was walking in the temple, in the portico of Solomon. Most of us sitting here can't picture what that was. You really have to see recreations of the temple to believe it. It was huge. It was vast. And it was stunning in its beauty. This area was on the very outside of the temple mount. It formed a perfect square around the temple. It was 660 feet long on all four sides, 30 feet tall. The outer wall was closed, but the inner wall was open to the temple mount itself. And a bit of humanity of Christ is being given to us here. Since it would have made perfect sense for Jesus to be walking there, to stay out of the cold winter wind that blew from the north that time of the year. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. Verses 24 and 25 describe an ambush that was being set and sprung. The religious leaders must have predetermined that the next time that Jesus showed up anywhere near the temple, that they would stop him before he could ruin any more religious festivals. And they desired to garner even more political clout with them in the eyes of the masses by showing their authority over him in stopping him. And the question that they asked Jesus was designed as a trap. It was set for him to step into and not to be able to step out of. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. How Jesus answered these questions is important to us, the sheep of the Good Shepherd. What we have here is what is deemed apologetics, the defense of the faith. These men told Jesus that they did not believe him. They didn't believe in him. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. This is the same line of reasoning and questions that you will all face at some point in our life. There are men and women, mostly men who have spent their entire, entire lives speaking on, defending, and writing about the proof that Jesus is God. Again, this is called apologetics. Not an apology. You're not apologizing for the fact that you're a Christian, although sometimes it comes across that way. But apology means to answer, to defend, to prove. Josh McDowell is a great example of this type of person. He was an atheistic reporter who set out to prove that Jesus was not God and instead was brought to the reality that Jesus is in fact the Lord God himself, which then led him to write a best-selling book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Ravi Zacharias was another man who spent most of his entire life defending the reality of Christ on university campuses. He didn't take the same tact that Josh McDowell did. Instead, he used ancient philosophical arguments to uphold the reality of Christ as God. And these philosophical arguments aren't new. They're old. 
Plato and Aristotle kind of old. And they're broken down into just to a few basic arguments. The first is a cosmological argument, which basically argues for the existence of God based on the inferred facts found in nature, such as causations, changes, motion, and dependency upon itself. The second argument is called the ontological argument and basically argues that since we can think that God exists, he must therefore exist. And the third major philosophical, philosophical argument is called the teleological argument, the intelligent design argument in our day. So which one of these arguments did Jesus use to answer this question? Or did he, since he's God and knows everything, use them all? Which one did he use to shut the mouths of these lying men who desired to discredit him, to disgrace him, and even to kill him? That answer is found in verse 25. I told you, and you don't believe. The argument that is being laid out against Jesus by these men that he is that he had not told them. They said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Their argument was that he had been evasive in telling them, that he had skirted the issue, avoided answering it, or gave half-truths in answering it. And to be honest, there are many people, even to this day, who still hold that Jesus never actually claimed to be God, even going so far as to say that it was disciples, his disciples, who made him God after he had been crucified. It was they that created Christianity as a means of making money and garnering influence and prestige for themselves. They will claim, and you may have even thought this yourself, that Jesus never literally ever came out and said, I am God. He said lots of things that were close to that, that can mean that, but they could also mean not that. Well, let's just settle this issue once and for all in our own minds. The problem was never that Jesus was avoiding answering the question or that he was being evasive or vague. He clearly told these men that he had answered this question, that he had told them. When did he tell them? In all those I am statements, the ones that I've been trying to impress upon you. Most clearly in John chapter 8, verse 58, when he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And on the heels of saying that he had already told them, but they didn't believe, he added that they not only did not believe his words, but they were also ignoring physical proof as well. He said, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. As I mentioned to you before, John tells us in chapter 21, verse 25, Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world could not contain the books that would be written. This is kind of helpful since John has been kind of sparse so far about writing about the miracles that Jesus has done. He's only given us seven. We could think that these, if the events given to us in the book of John were all that Jesus had ever done, it would be no wonder that these religious leaders ignored them. It'd be easy to do. They happened so sporadically and never in the same way. The reality is, however, that each and every one of the miracles that Jesus performed proved that he was God. Not a lesser God, not just sent by God, but God in the flesh, every one of them a statement that he himself has just made to these men who did not believe in him. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Witness to what? To the validity of his claim. What claim? The truth that he is the Christ, the I am. This is the portion of scripture that I told you would be dealing with that all too often neglected and seemingly hard topic of apologetics. Were you listening to the response by Jesus, how he answered the skeptics? 
what philosophical tack that he took to prove to these men that he was God? Did you hear, did you hear the evidence that he gave them that demands a verdict? He told them that he had told them, and that was it. His works, the ones that he pointed to after saying that they um, saying this were not the evidence that he gave them. Those works were merely an outward physical manifestation of the reality of what he had said to them, to the things that they didn't believe in. This answer is called presuppositional apologetics. In a nutshell, it holds at its core the fact that outside of God, there is no rational thought. That outside of the word of God, we cannot know truth. We cannot know God. Outside of the regeneration of the spirit, we cannot understand the word of God. It presupposes that the word of God is divinely inspired and inerrant in its original manuscripts. Now I know this is earth-shattering, mind-blowing, that Christians actually think that the Bible is true. How strange. And yet, many, if not most of us, are reluctant to engage in the defense of our faith. And if we do, we relinquish that which we claim to be truth. If we engage with people, we will argue to that atheist that they can't prove that God does not exist any more than we can prove that he does. That was the whole premise behind that movie, God is Not Dead. And we think when we argue that, that we have done something. We will argue that if they are wrong, I'm sorry, that if we are wrong, that we've lost nothing. But if the atheist is wrong, man, they've lost their whole eternity. That kind of argument for the existence of God is not found anywhere in the Bible. The Bible and Christ personally have very, speci very specific things to say about himself. Psalm 1911, the heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 14, 1 through 4, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does, God, who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge. All are evildoers. John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Romans 1, 18 through 25, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Christianity is built upon truth. 
We who are called by his name are expected to adhere to the same principles that our master set down for us. This includes standing on the truth and not being part of lies. But every time that we argue for the existence of God and we don't start with, don't stand on, and are not dogmatic about the truth of the word of God, then we have forfeited the truth of the word of God and act as if it is not truth, as if we're ashamed of that truth. Yeah, but the atheist doesn't believe that the Bible is true. So I'm trying to meet him where he's at and convince him that through intelligent design that there is a God. Well, even if you can convince him that there is a God behind intelligent design, you will not have convinced him that Jesus is God. And more fundamentally, you have just taken the truth of the word of God and thrown it out the window, acted like it doesn't matter. In the Romans verses that I read, why is the wrath of God revealed against, uh, from heaven against unrighteousness? Because they suppress the truth. They are without excuse for not knowing. That atheist says, does not believe. They are without excuse, excuse for not knowing. Their not knowing is the wrath of God being poured out on them. Hear once again what Jesus told these people who seemed to truly desire to be enlightened, who seemed like they were really interested, who wanted to know if he was God or not. He answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He didn't change his tact. He didn't argue from anywhere else except the clear revelation that he was God, as he has already told them. And that his life, his teachings, all pointed to the truth of who he is. And then he tells them why they, along with every other human, cannot, do not know the truth. Why they cannot grasp the truth that he's telling them. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus didn't ask them if they wanted to accept him as their good shepherd. He didn't ask them if they wanted to become one of his sheep. He didn't apologize that they were left out, that they weren't part of the flock. He rightly understood that it was their own sin that had separated them from God, that had caused them to be not one of his sheep. And he didn't offer them to accept him into their hearts. What he did was to tell them truth once again. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. Jesus makes a clear distinction between those that are his sheep and those that are not. He didn't try to argue those that are not his sheep into being his sheep. The fact that they don't hear his voice, that they don't follow him, prove that they are not of him and that he does not know them. And in his explanation of who he is, in his argument for truth, he once again tells these men who do not understand, who cannot comprehend, who do not have the eyes to see or the ears to hear the awful truth concerning the consequences of not seeing, of not hearing. Those that are his, who do hear his voice, who he does know, to those and those alone, he makes three truth claims. He gives them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of his hand. And then he tells these men who do not understand, who do not believe that his words are true, that cannot hear this truth. He tells them more truth. The reason why 
he can make these truth claims. He says, his father has given these to him, and he and the father, I'm sorry, and he, the father, is greater than all. You might be able, you might be thinking that you might be able to snatch one of these out of my hands, but you will never snatch them from his hand. I and the Father are one. Which brings us to verse 31. More color commentary. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. In case you don't understand what's happening in our account, these men who have surrounded Jesus with the sole intent of outing him as a fake and a fraud have gotten what they desired. They, came, they got now what they came looking for. They got the evidence that they desired to do this away with this guy. He had just admitted in clear language that he thinks that he is God incarnate in the flesh. So they picked up stones again to stone him. Maybe you didn't notice that again statement when we read this section of scripture earlier. This wasn't the first time that these men had enough evidence to which to kill this man for this reason. We're told in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus declared, before Abraham was born, I am. Verse 59, At this they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple area. And now he's back in that temple area. And once again, these men have taken up stones to kill him with. I want to talk a minute about what Jesus was facing here. When the Bible talks about stoning a person, it doesn't mean that these people, these men, would just pick up these small rocks off the ground to hurl at a person. These were big stones, bone-crushing, eternal, internal organ-bursting kind of stones. And this wasn't an idle threat. They meant it. The danger was real. Their intent was real. Their hatred was real. And throughout this entire ordeal, Jesus had remained calm, in charge, never hedging his bets, never changing his tactics or his story, never softening it to not offend these men who had malicious intent in their hearts towards him. He stood on truth. And the reason for this is found in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now to be clear, Jesus standing there on that day knew that he and the Father were one. That he was God incarnate. But at the same time, he was also fully man. And it was not his eternal, heavenly self that was answering these men. It was his totally human self that was. This is important for us to understand, to grasp, to hang on to. Christ told us in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that you may have peace in me. In the world you, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is truth. Don't expect this life to be easy. It's not going to be. Christ was never shy in telling his disciples truth. He told them what to expect from others because of him, and even how they were expected to act because of him. Listen to this little pep talk that Jesus gave to his disciples, to his sheep, in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 16. He said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. To, wear, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious of how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. 
and you will be hated by all for my, um, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant his master. And if they have, they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Wow. Tony Robbins could really gain some pointers from that motivational speech. Why in the world would anyone follow this guy? If he tells us this is the life that you can expect in me, why would anybody follow him? Why would anybody sign up and say, ooh, that's me? Because they hear his voice and know him as their good shepherd. But how are we? How are they supposed to be able to actually do this? How are we mere mortals supposed to be able to stand on the day of trouble? Christ could because he's God. He knew that he was God. He knew that he and the Father were one. Once again, I want to emphasize the importance of understanding the hypostatic union of Christ. Understand the importance of the incarnation and the life of Christ. Understand that we are supposed to, what we're supposed to glean from the life of Christ. Hear Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is un unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Yes, Jesus is God. Yes, he knew that he and the Father were one. And for this reason, he was confident in the loving care and control of his Father. This is why he could stand calmly and take on these men. Why he never wavered in the defense of the truth of truth itself. Folks, hear me on this. We have been given the same truth that Jesus had. This is why the author of Hebrews could say that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knew that weakness. The only difference is that he didn't have a sin nature that doubted the truth that he knew. He and the Father were one. He didn't doubt this. He knew this as truth, and for this reason, he walked in this truth. Saints, have you heard the voice of the Good Shepherd? Do you recognize it as being his? If so, then you have been called by him to be his. You have been given the Holy Spirit as your guarantee to the truth that Jesus had spoken concerning giving you eternal life. And for this reason, you can and are even commanded to stand as he stood in that truth for his glory. Because of the great high priest, we can draw near to the throne of grace. And there we will find mercy and grace in our time of need. This is how Christ stood, and this is how we are to stand. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? In the midst of these men picking up boulders with which to crush Jesus, he calmly just asked this question, which seems to catch them off guard and de-escalate the situation. The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. 
In case everyone ever tells you that Christ never claimed to be God, the same as God, equal to God, these men clearly understood that that was not the case. They knew what he said and were ready to stone him for it. Again, in his next response, we see the importance of the word of God in the life of the believer. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you who say of, to him, of him who the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming because I say I am the Son of God? The response by Jesus to these men is rock solid. And it ties back into that apologetics that Jesus was using as proof that he was, in fact, God. He quoted scripture as truth. And that scripture that he quoted is Psalm 82, in case you want to look at it. Four verses. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you men shall all die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The fact that Jesus used this psalm in this manner is given to us to contrast him with these false shepherds who, like all men, were created in the image of God. But like, unlike all men, these shepherds were given the word of God by which to rule and lead and shepherd his flock. This is how Psalm 82 applied to these men. They were of the chosen race, the chosen family, the covenant group, and they had been given the law. The difference was the fact that Jesus was of God and sinless, and they were not of God and consumed by sin. And this is the thrust of the question that Jesus asked them in verse 36, when he says, Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. This line of reasoning by Christ here can be shocking to our ears. We think that it can't mean what he said. We think that we're not understanding what Jesus is implying here. If he, if he is claiming to be God and then says that God himself calls mere mortal God, mere mortals God, then his claim means nothing. It's like that participation trophy. It's meaningless. But this is not the case. In Christ, through Christ, we are sons of God. John 1.12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Every one of us here should be able to say, along with our father Abraham, that we are a son of God and know it. We are not the Son of God, but in Him, because of Him, and through Him, we are a Son of God. And because of that, we should live like this is a reality. And then Jesus goes back to his original line of argument. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them... Even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may understand, the and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This leads us to the last bit of color commentary found in verses 39 through 42. 
Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Here's the conclusion of our account today. It began with Christ being surrounded by hostile men who desired to kill him and ended with many believing in him. Those, desire, those men that desired to kill him saw the same signs that these that believed in him saw. They heard the same preaching, the same truth that those that believed heard. What was the difference? And what difference does it actually make? Because the religious leaders didn't have an issue with the concept of the Messiah. They held to it just like everyone else did. Their problem was not with that. Their problem was what they, is that they stumbled over the body of Christ. They couldn't get past the fact that this man, this ordinary run-of-the-mill kind of guy, was claiming to be God. He didn't match up to their expectations of what the Messiah would look like, be like. They were looking for Thor, for Superman. And this guy was just ordinary. He spoke too plainly for their taste. And he was much too willing to offend them and go against the flow to be their Messiah. What are we to glean from this encounter? And the way in which Jesus, our Messiah, handled himself. First, we have a bad understanding of what it is to be a Christian. We think that we need to emulate Jesus, and in doing so, that we need to be kind, soft, loving, caring. Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. This is Jesus speaking. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Second, we have a bad understanding of the person of Jesus. Christ is not that soft, wimpy guy that is being proclaimed out there. Christ is divisive. He is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense spoken of in 1 Peter 2.8, something that Jesus himself told the religious leaders in Matthew 21, verse 44, he says that about that stone, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when this falls on anyone, it will crush them. Those are your two choices concerning Jesus. The division that happened in this story all happened because of and was centered on the person of Christ. Not the idea of Jesus Christ, not the theoretical understanding of the Messiah or if there was a God or not. And Christ knew that this was the case. He knew that these men who were not of his family, who were not of his flock, would not, could not believe that he was God. And this truth is the truth that he told them. And he didn't stand there wringing his hands and worry that they would be offended by this truth. He didn't hold back in telling them truth. We should take the same tact of Christ in our apologetics. But unfortunately, we really are semi-Pelagian in our thinking, in our theology. Thinking that people can decide for themselves. That they can be shown the truth. And for this reason, when we do apologetics, we don't stand on truth and stand on truth alone. 
We don't want to be, we don't want to be seen as mean-spirited, small-minded, unintelligent. Who else would actually believe that the word of God is truth? And who else would actually tell people that the reason that they can't know Jesus as Lord is because they're outside of the truth? And we love to listen to those apologists online who shut down those antagonistic college students using logic and reason. We think that's what we need to do. But here, the outcome of Jesus's presuppositional apologetics. What happened because he stood on and stood for truth? They said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Saints, the mission of Christ has not changed or diminished. He is still in the saving business. This is what a savior does. The question that you have to ask yourself is this. Do you believe this? Do you hear his voice? And do you know his word to be truth? To be your very life? If you answer affirmative to these things, then you can be confident in the same truth that made him confident on that day. He and the Father are one. He alone gives life, and no one can snatch them out of his hands. Be confident in the reality of the word of God, the truth of God. Explain to people why they cannot, do not see Jesus as Lord. You never know when the Lord will use you as a minister of reconciliation between that dead man and himself and allow you to watch as he takes that goat and transforms them into a sheep, takes that dead man walking and makes them alive, takes that not child of his and returns them home as his, as only he can do. Let's pray.